Hello and welcome to Digfin Vox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, give us a like, subscribe, let the algorithms know. My guest today is Jesse Chenard, founder of Monetico, a Singapore-based fintech that is bringing digitization to trade finance. It's a great conversation to understand technology, use cases, and what might be next for transaction banking. Jesse Chenard, welcome to Digfin Vox. Thanks, Cam. Nice to be here. Great to have you. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I talk to a lot of people in fintech. They usually come from banking. You've got an actual tech background, um, and I don't. I think in your early days, you were pretty far away from anything related to fintech. So I'd love just to hear about uh, how you got your start. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I started out as a lowly Microsoft certified systems engineer up in Canada basically fixing old 486s and, and things like that. Um, managed to get into Linux, which was pretty fortuitous for me. It enabled me to get a, my first job at an AV company uh, where they were doing online video streaming, which was kind of a new thing, mostly just sort of poster-sized little videos in the corner of a page and everyone was still on dial-up, but it was pretty novel. Um, as I worked through that company, we wound up doing a company that was related to financial uh, to, um, uh, space. Actually, we did real-time transcripts of earnings calls, a product called AnalystCall.com that ultimately got bought by CCBN and then Thomson Reuters. Um, and uh, after that, I had become somewhat of a streaming expert. Um, and so I got hired to work at a content delivery network, which is similar to Akamai. Basically, they help power the internet from the underside. Um, and one of the things that came out uh, more and more was video was becoming a potential revenue center versus a cost center. And how would you do video advertising? Um, no one really had a good answer for it, especially in this emerging technology called Flash. And it was pre-YouTube. Um, so what years so are we I, talking about here? Early, you know, like late 90s? Yeah, 2002, 2003, 2001. Um, and uh, and so so I had another client called DoubleClick, and they served banner ads to people and, and targeted them. And I thought, well, what if you could use a, you know an ad server to drive a video player? Um, so I went to my buddy at DoubleClick and said, hey, can I use your ad server to do video? He said, you're crazy. We don't do that. I said, you do. You just don't know it yet. I uh, went to a couple of developers up in Canada that had worked with me. We created this prototype. I took it around to every major media house and they said, this is great. This is, you know, something exactly what we need. Who sells the ads? And I think this was, I was sitting at CBS or Viacom at the time. And, uh, and I said, well, don't you guys sell ads? I had no idea about the advertising industry, much like when I got into financial services. Um, and so I wound up merging my company with an ad network that was doing rich media, doing in-banner video ads. And we created the first video advertising network for online video. Um, so it was, a, it was, a, it was a pretty interesting learning experience out of it. I became one of the foremost experts in, in online video advertising, um, and, uh, did a, another company after that, uh, in the in-image advertising space, a couple of guys that I was advising, they helped, I wanted me to become their CEO. So I helped them out. We raised some money we sold that to another ad network. Um, after that, I kind of got a little bit burnt out. Um, so I just took a little bit of a break, um, and was advising entrepreneurs. Um, you know, I've always said in New York, you always get these great mentors, you know, heads of heads of major media companies that will give you 10, 15 minutes of their time just to tell you whether your idea is good, bad, or maybe they can help you with it. So I've always done that, given back. And one of the friends of a friend that I encountered was a, my co-founder in Manetigo, Patrick Manasti. And uh, he was working on some Bitcoin related stuff. And I thought Bitcoin was pretty stupid at the time. 
And, uh, but he was, you know, a good friend of a friend. So I thought, of course, I'll help him out, looked at it. And uh, that was kind of the genesis of Monetigo about eight years ago now. What's the connection? Because Monetigo is all about supply chain work, um, trade finance. Um, it, it, it feels a million miles away from Bitcoin. So what, yeah. what is that? What's that journey? How'd you go from, you know, kind of dabbling in crypto into being a, a, a supply chain, st- you know, startup entrepreneur? Yeah. So when, when I first encountered Patrick, he was working on the idea of opening Bitcoin exchanges in multiple different countries with local currencies. And I thought, eh, who cares? You're just selling Bitcoin to people, right? Um, but then I started to look at the markets with my advertising background, the ad network background. It's all about arbitrage and margins, right? Mm-hmm. And I started to look at these diff- diff- disparities in the different uh, dollar or, or sort of uh, currency bearings. And I said, well, geez, you could use this to do money transfers. Um, and, and effectively, in a lot of cases, bring it in below the interbank rate by just doing arbitrage across different markets with uh, price discrepancies. So we went about the arduous task. Patrick is a lawyer. Um, so he went about the arduous task of putting together a compliance program. We applied for money service licenses everywhere. Our entire notion behind this was not to be the next uh, MoneyGram or, or Western Union. It was really more to show that we could be the rails behind this and that crypto could be an effective mechanism for doing it. Um, so we went out, we would set up bank accounts in multiple different jurisdictions around the world, which at that time, this is sort of, I guess, uh, about five, six or seven years ago, was very difficult to do. Um, so we obviously had to have a good button down story. Um, and we started out on our, on our plat- platform path and we launched and we had a few users doing, you know, small money transfer, small business, stuff like that. But again, we didn't really want to go about sort of the customer acquisition side of it. We thought we had good rails. So we started pitching it to financial institutions. We actually got quite far with Barclays uh, in their Techstars program uh, in uh, for one, the, one of their London cohorts. Um, uh, we got all the way to the finalist stage. I went to London. I presented to a room full of people, CEOs from all the different nature or different areas that they cover. Um, everyone was sort of batting me on the back going, this is a really interesting idea, you know, the way you guys are approaching it. Um, and then their lawyers caught wind of it. Um, their lawyers said, absolutely no way. Can we work with a company that's, that's actively uh, you know, holding or transacting in Bitcoin? It, it's against the EBA rules. So we were a little bit discouraged after that. You know, we kind of actually a few of the team members had to go off and, and work elsewhere. And uh, but the core of us stuck together. Um, I was like, let's get off site. So we went to San Francisco for a month, went through a quasi accelerator that turned out to not be that great. But it did give us a month together to just sort of analyze what we wanted to do. During that time, our managing director from India, um, he said, well, look, I, I like what we're trying to do. We have a new prime minister, Modi, he's come in, he's talked about dropping you know, inbound remittance rates and things like that. Maybe we can get this to fly over here in India. So he set up a series of meetings. I flew to India for the very first time. This was about, I guess, seven years, six or seven years ago now. And uh, and I was meeting with a bunch of different banks, sort of explaining what our, what our, what our thesis was and, and India was actually worked out quite well because of the currency controls and what have you. Bitcoin went for a bit of a premium back then. And uh, one of the heads of ICIC Bank that I was meeting with started laughing in the middle of the meeting when I was explaining the, the, the path with Barclays and the EBA stance and all this sort of stuff. And and he laughed and I sort of, at first time in India, I thought maybe I committed like a social faux pas or whatever. And he, he apologized and said, Sorry, Jesse. He's like, but if you think the EBA is tough, the European Banking Association is tough. He's you like, wait, the RBI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So, so I was like, oh, okay, really? And, um, and he's like, look, this is not going to fly here. I, you know, I'm just being candid and honest with you, but you guys seem to know what you're talking about. Blockchain is something that's very big on our radar. Can you help us with other projects related to blockchain? And we had already been exploring using Hyperledger and, and Ethereum and a bunch of different alternate technologies besides sort of Bitcoin core. Um, and, and we said, yeah, absolutely. Um, and at the time, you know, R3 was just forming, um, you know, there was a bunch of different focus in Europe and, but India was largely underserved. Uh, there was nobody really with the international voice speaking to them. And so we kind of became that voice. We went around to a bunch of different banks and said, at first we were kind of thinking a utility blockchain that could do multiple different things. And you've got the single source of record. Uh, the question that came back time and time again was, well, this all sounds good, but what does the Reserve Bank of India think? And so they kept hammering the Reserve Bank. We kept going back to the Reserve Bank. They're actually quite accessible, which was, which was quite uh, interesting to learn. Um, and ultimately, the, they put together through their research arm, the IDRBT, uh, a working group with a number of banks, uh, a couple of the big uh, SI systems integrators, um, and Manetigo. Uh, we were invited. We were the only fintech and only, I think, foreign company invited. Um, so we helped write the white paper around what types of uh, blockchains would be permissible, private permission, token lists, things like that. Um, and at the end of it, uh, Dr. Ramasastri, who was the head of the IDRBT at that time, said, look, could we maybe do a couple technical proof of concepts? Um, so we did. What's the IDRBT? It's the Institute for Development and Research and Banking Technology. Um, it's, it's, it's a government the, thing or? Uh... It's, the, it's the, basically the research arm of the Reserve Bank of India. Okay, great. Um, so they're the ones who created their interbank payment network and then handed that off to the um, to the to the folks uh, at and then you know NDTP. And CPI, National yeah. Payment Corporation, NPCI, yeah, National NPCI. Payment yeah, yeah, yeah. So many, so many, so many letters. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, so fast forward, we kind of had this white paper out there. We had gone gained some legitimate sort of credibility in the market, and we started really looking for a use case that would work. And uh, lo and behold, we came across the Treads exchanges. They had just launched, or were, were launching shortly, um, and had this problem of double financing across them. Uh, they had looked at a bunch of different sort of possible ways of doing it. Uh, one was a centralized body, but that came with a lot of overhead and and, uh, and governance. And they they themselves were startups. So we came up with this novel concept of, hey, why don't we just launch a simple blockchain for you guys? The only function of it will be to hash out uh, the details of an invoice, create a sort of a unique fingerprint or, or hash for that. And then you can identify whether it's been funded elsewhere in the network without sharing any of the information. Uh, they said, great, this sounds like a good idea, very cost-effective because we just charged on a per transaction basis. Uh, so that went live in 2018. Uh, Around that time and with the publicity, we had a whole bunch of other receivables financing people coming to us and saying, hey, how do we participate in this in this treads network that you guys have created? And that was kind of a light bulb moment for us that we weren't just, you know, we weren't just solving a problem for three clients, that this is a global problem in nature. So we started to then pitch it to the banks. And of course, bank procurement processes take forever. Um, luckily, I share a common mentor with the CEO of Swift India. And he said, look, I've been talking with, with Kieran. I, you know, I, I know you guys very well. I think maybe Swift should help resell your, your service in India to the banks here. So that was kind of the genesis of our first Swift partnership. Um, so I met with Kieran. I stayed an extra day, sat, stayed over on a Saturday, met with Kieran in, in, uh, in Mumbai, sort of hashed out what a, what a deal would look like. We're basically Swift resells our service. So we went through the whole technical vetting, the security auditing, all that stuff with Swift. And then Swift has told the banks now that, okay, this is blessed and okay, and so they trust it, um, so are able to use it directly through the Swift rails. 
And what was it that most attracted banks to use it? Um, so it's 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 funny. It's it's the same as when I started that video advertising company, and I'd walk into into these places that were bleeding bleeding uh, uh, sort of. Uh, expenses on video sort of delivery and i'd walk and i'd say how would you like to start making money off your video as opposed to, to to losing it the answer is always yes same thing when i walk in or when our company walks into a compliance or risk management uh person and uh, department and say how would you like to reduce fraud in your in your trade finance book but also potentially be able to expand your book because you've now reduced the, the this sort of vector of threat uh, uh, so substantially um, and again, that answer is always uh, quite quite resounding. Tell me more. Yes, this sounds good in theory. Um, so yeah, the, the the banks see it as both a way to mitigate risk, also compliance, uh, because they they you know they're coming more under a regulatory microscope now in, in a lot of these these cases and having to sort of even back test their data. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a mix of things, and then like I say, also you know long term the vision with this whole digitization or digitalization of of the financial services space, um, you know this is one key part of it, um, and so ultimately being able to open this up to to broader markets, the sort of the deeper markets, uh, as well as as de-risking the very high end transactions like we've seen with some trading scandals. How does it work? Because if you've got some friends in India, but they're trading cross border, so how much do you need to have uh, either foreign correspondent banks or regulators in other markets that basically bless the platform or take a note on it, or how, however that works? So, so, so we, we've seen a number of different trade finance registries pop up. So we've had ours in India for a long time. UAA Trade Connect has one in Dubai. Um, ITMX has launched one here in Thailand. Uh, Manetigo just won the trade finance registry in Singapore. And interestingly, with all of these projects, everyone's like, okay, well, we just want to solve for domestic first. Um, and then they go phase two is international cross-border import-export. Um, but the problem with that is, is that you've got this one-to-many issue, right? Um, and everyone's got disparate pricing schemes. So in, in, in the UAE, they charge dollars, we charge pennies in India. Um, Trade finance registry will charge whatever they charge. ITMX charges whatever they charge here in Thailand, and so on and so forth. Um, everyone's got separate disparate APIs, although we've we've kind of come up with an ISO 222 standard in conjunction with SWIFT for this messaging. Um, but the, the the issue is is that if you want us to get effectively true global coverage, you basically have to go one to many and and check every single one and register your invoice with every single one or at least with this, with, is, the, this is a problem with any kind of blockchain right i mean basically it works so, great if everybody's on it but yeah. if you only have a few people then it's just you know you're just staring at each other well and so so what what we what we what we looked at as well was was this problem of of the global nature right how do you do import export and what we decided in in conjunction with so this has advanced our relationship now with swift global um, so we're the first API partner, uh, fintech API partner that Swift's ever partnered with. They will be offering access to this, what we call the global hash registry. Mm -hmm. So instead of having it registered per country, every country registers with the global hash registry and it's pennies uh, to do it. Um, so there's there's no reason why you wouldn't. And then that's how, how everybody solves their cross-border issue. Interestingly, as we've sort of scaled up in India, we've had to move from Hyperledger to Corda just based on scalability concerns. When, and it's been working fine for us, but when you look at the global nature of everybody in every country around the world, 24-7, uh, registering not just invoices, but bills of lading, purchase orders, warehouse receipts, anything that they might be using in, in, a, in a financing transaction, um, blockchain doesn't work for that. 
Um, yeah. So we actually partnered with Google around their their uh, secure computing product, um, which gives you certain elements of blockchain. Um, and that's kind of one of the, the, the things we've learned on our journey at Monetico. You know, first we were a blockchain company and then it was, okay, well, no, we're more of a, a, a financial services software provider where we're just looking for problems and blockchain potentially might be the back end of it to really going, okay, what are the elements of, of blockchain that everyone is so excited about? One is obviously this privacy notion, right? Where, where you can submit information to it or request information to it and, and sort of do a zero knowledge proof where you just get an answer back versus the underlying data. Um, the other is, is immutability um, and, and sort of being able to trust that, that that data has integrity. You can accomplish both these things using cloud computing and secure computing and possibly tapping into a public blockchain. Uh, for just basically time stamping or, or record stamping. Um, and, and so that's kind of what we've done for this now, I guess, third generation of our secure financing product is to take it to basically cloud computing. Uh, so it's distributed, still distributed all around the world. Um, the information when it comes into our system basically goes into a black box that nobody, not even a, a hardware level administrator would be able to access. Um, and then the results are, are then sort of given to the, to the common record. Um, and it, it solves a lot of problems. One is data localization because we're not storing data outside the country. It's just simply a, a hash of that data, one way irreversible hash. Um, it also solves for a lot of regulatory concerns in terms of where, you know, what, what data is living where and consent around that data because we don't keep it. There's no, there's no need to, to worry about third-party consent and things like that, which is coming into not just effect in or not into play in Europe, but now also Dubai has a, a new privacy law as well. So um, there's a lot of considerations there around that data storage. But yeah, we feel that um, blockchain is still a very effective tool. Um, it's it's something that we were looking at for some of the other products that we'll be launching in the next year um, and, and, and the different elements of it. But I think one thing that the fintechs and, and the technology industry and the financial services and other spaces have learned is that it doesn't necessarily make sense to run your application natively on the blockchain so much as it does to take advantage of a blockchain that's there and use whatever elements you need for that application uh, as you know, sort of using the blockchain as just one component of your solution. What's the advantage if, so you, if blockchain is already there, so in Ethereum or, or something like that, that's already in existence, yeah. uh, what is the, you know, what are the use cases now that you've gone through this journey, Jesse, what are the use cases for a blockchain? How does it fit in versus using cloud-based, um, you, you know, a, a distributed cloud solution, um, yeah. pros and cons? So, so there's a, uh, I believe it's out of the consent, spun out of the consensus uh, guys, the Ethereum Joe Lubin's group. Um, and it's, I think it's called the baseline protocol. Um, and so baseline protocol is for doing pretty much exactly the latter case that I described there, where you've got a set of records and you want to just basically uh, immutably timestamp them and show that you've got proof of data integrity. So you take your, your data set, you run it through a hashing algorithm, and then you publish that hash into the into the into the baseline protocol, which I believe uses the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and then you've got this timestamp that where if somebody comes back and says, "Hey, has this data been tampered with?" You run it through the same hash, and then you point back to that point in time, um, and then and then you can you can prove that it hasn't been tampered with. Um, Stuart Haber, they call him one of the inventors of blockchain. Uh, yeah. He told us the story about uh, the, the company that he worked for, I think, in the '90s. 
and uh, and they had a service basically of 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 you know sort of checking data integrity. This is before we had to write once read many systems and other other things that we've sort of gotten by this with technology. But people who are law firms and things like that, or people patented stuff, IT, IP stuff, um, and they would give them their data set and they would run a hash of it and then store that data set for an extra price. You could actually have uh, an immutable record, and what they do is they hash the data take an ad out in the New York Times and publish the, the, the hash into the New York Times. So on Sunday, the whatever, that data set was there and you could go back and you could take the hash out of the New York Times, run your data set through it. If the two matched, then the data hadn't been tampered with. Um, so those are, those are the, the, to me, the most immediate interesting uses of blockchain. Um, I think setting up a blockchain amongst a group of closed participants um, again, depending on the use case and depending how complex the application is and what have you, there's a lot of overhead, there's a lot of communication, there's a lot of computational power, there's potential licensing, um, and, a, and a, a pretty much a big lack of, of, of talent out there, engineering talent, not just programmers, but also uh, systems administrators and DevOps. Right. So a lot of these um, consortiums and DLTs uh, that, that banks and other players have been putting together often for trade finance supply chain kind of uses. We've yeah. seen a few of them have already closed doors. Do you, do you see a future for them? Uh, yeah. So, so some guys are doing it right. Like contour, uh, those mm -hmm. guys are, you know, they're, they're slow, but steady. They've got the right constituents together. And I think that's the key point, right? Is like, can you get a little bit of critical mass and build on that? Um, so, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, we're big fans of those guys. We think that, that they're, they're taking the right approach. I think, you know, where it's, it's, you know, Carl, I don't think, you know, he didn't start the company, uh, but from Contour, yeah, yeah. Carl Wagner from Contour, he didn't start, the company, but yeah. he's got a very, very entrepreneurial spirit and a ton of, ton of background. And I think that's the key in, in, in starting any company, right? You can get a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of money and throw someone into a job. Um, but unless you got someone who's got passion, you know, Carl's got probably 30, whatever years experience in this space. Whenever I ask Carl about something and, and uh, you know, a story will come up and, and he'll be like, oh, we did that 20 years ago. Um, so I think guys like that, uh, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna bump and grind and, and, uh, and, and, and probably come out with something pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, you know, I think longer term, it, it, it behooves people to really look at what elements of blockchain you're, you're gaining value from and can you use a publicly available blockchain that's got a, a, a good amount of commerce and, and validity to it already. Um, versus setting up your own full group of nodes and things like that, which, um, yeah. you know, again, and, 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 it'll come, it'll come, yeah. but it'll, it'll, it'll still, still some time. Does Ethereum's merge, they're moved from proof of work to proof of stake. Does that make that more attractive for that kind of use case or? Um, so, so Ethereum that, you know, there's other, there's other chains out there that I've heard of Cardano and, and, and a couple other ones that I think have less, less uh, price to them. So I think that's going to be the 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 real uh, give and take, right? Because if it costs me yes, the gas charges mean the gas charges. charges. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, uh, but if but if it costs me a dollar one day and three dollars the next day and fifty cents the next day, um, then as a business, sort of, I can't really plan around that. Um, right. You need you need some consistency um, with that. But again, I think that some of these other blockchains out there are going to get there. The problem though is 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 that will they last? Um, and that's that's the biggest thing, right? Because if, if that blockchain ultimately goes down, yes, you, I guess you can have a data storage uh, backup of it. Um, so you could still provide that proof of integrity, but then you're porting to another chain or what have you. But uh, but still, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's very early days, even, even though we've all been working on this for seven or eight, 12 years. Yeah. 
For Minetigo, where do you see it going? I mean, you've gone through a number of iterations, like I guess a good founder, uh, always yeah. pivoting. Uh, where do you where do you see the business going to head in the next year or two? And what does that really say about, I guess, uh, compliance and in, in supply chains? Yeah, yeah. So we we're we're having up on fraud. Um, you know, we 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 feel like by getting this network of participants together and especially coming through the mantle of SWIFT uh, with, that, with that validity, it gives regulatory comfort and, and uh, compliance and, and inside risk management comfort. Um, so our, 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 we think we have a, a powerful uh, proposition there, especially as people come out to identify duplicate financing, there are other aspects. So in India, we've been doing this since pretty much the very beginning. Uh, is we also check into the goods and services tax authority. So in India, a business is required to file all of their receivables and payables down to the invoice detail uh, with the goods and services tax network. So with that supplier consent, we actually look in and see that the invoice exists there, that the values all match, that the dates match, all that sort of stuff like that. Um, we also look at the e-way bill. So if it's a physical shipment of goods, we can actually, again, with the supplier consent, log into the e-way bill system, which is basically something that you need to provide uh, transport goods cross border there. It shows that all the taxes are covered. Um, we can look into that, make sure that the item descriptions match, that, that again, the invoice details match, and that it's going from where it says it's going to where it's uh, supposed to be going. Um, and again, these are just data points that give risk management, uh, I think, uh, or risk managers or compliance people uh, a little bit more comfort. So looking at that on a global scale, uh, we're doing partnerships with a number of big data providers. I think some have been announced, some are being announced. Um, but again, that's, I think our, our real opportunity is to not just look at, you know, the duplicity of, of the financing, but also um, uh, has it, you know, is it authentic? And what other data sources can we hone in on to make sure that, the oil tanker that's supposed to be going from India to Dubai isn't off the coast of Somalia or or wherever it's not supposed yeah. to be. And how do you generate revenue, Jess? Uh, so we do it on a per transaction basis. Mm -hmm. So as people register uh, uh, documents with us or do authenticity checks against those documents, we charge uh, on on that per transaction basis. And um, for the again, it's it's pennies, less than a dollar for that duplicate financing check. And then depending on the data source provider for the authenticity check, um, it's, it's, you know, usually can be, can be dollars, can be, you know, can be pennies yeah. as well. And, and where is the, I guess, in terms of the profitability of, you know, the financial status of Monetigo? Uh, yeah, well, so we're a privately held company. Uh, we'll do less than 10 million this year. Um, and uh, we're, we're, uh, actively uh, always fundraising as, as I think most startups are. So we're just, uh, just about to announce closing of a round in the next, I think, month or so here. Um, so yeah, we're, we're on the aggressive build side of things. Um, you know, yeah. I think we're, we have the opportunity right now, as again, I said, with this network of banks that we're putting together, some of the largest multinational banks and, and, and the opportunity there to, uh, you know, I think continue to expand services, whether it be along the fraud side or along their digitalization journey. Um, so we're, we're investing heavily in the, in that side of things. Product Are you finding it a little tougher in this current environment on the fundraising side? Uh, we're, we're talking yeah. September of 2022, and it's been a rough ride for a lot of folks. Yeah, I was around in the dot-com crash of 2000 and whatever, 2001, uh, yeah. 2001. Um, we raised money. I think we made over 100 VC calls. We wound up getting a, a pittance of money. 
but that enabled us to get along to get bought by a larger company out of Boston, which they then injected a ton of cash into us. And um, so I've seen it. And then I was there when uh, winter is coming, uh, 2008. Uh, we were raising our Series B, I think, at that time. And it, it, it does make it challenging, but really, you know, having been through this, having seen, you know, 100 some odd term sheets, um, you know, it, it's really just more, is it investor favorable or company favorable, right? Um, if we've got a good idea, the money's there. Um, it's just what's it going to cost for that cash. And, and I think now, right now, we're seeing more investor favorable. Um, you know, pe people are still people are still writing checks, but um, they're they're making sure they're putting in some protect protective provisions. And they're also, I think, taking a harder look at, well, you know, this is going to be a maybe a year or two of this. Um, so what's your what's your next step? Because if your next step is to just raise more money, um, you might be in trouble. Yeah. So what what do you tell them then? What's the vision for the business? Um, so, so we, uh, you know, as, as we roll out, we've got a number of commitments from some of the largest banks around the world to start using this, uh, you know, pretty much ASAP. Again, some of them are going to be running their, their historical data through it. Um, and, uh, and so we, our revenue ramp, uh, hits, hits pretty, pretty big, uh, next year. Um, so, you know, definitely, definitely profitability again, depending on how much we want to reinvest into the business. Um, because mm -hmm. again, you know, I think this is very early stages. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm painting a pretty, pretty strong picture of, you know, all of the pieces have been put into place. Like I said, it's been an interesting eight year journey, but all of the pieces have been put into place. It's really an execution play right now. Um, there's, you know, as I said earlier, there's nobody saying, oh, this is a bad idea or your price structure is out of whack or it's cost too much up front or anything like that. Um, it's quite the opposite. We've been, we've been getting, you know, a fair amount of, um, uh, sort of attention and, and sort of people showcasing us within the company is something they should really do. There was a press release from standard charter about being the first through our swift pilot about a week or two ago, um, where they're, they were pretty proud of, of, of doing this and saying that we hope the whole industry adopts this because we need it. Um, so yeah, it's it's it'll it'll be a interesting, I think, uh, ne next year. Um, yeah. you know, and ultimately, what what do the banks hope to get be able to? What, you know, in a year from now, what do banks like Standard Charter hope to be able to say uh, about using the service? Um, well, so a big piece of what we're doing again with the, with the showing and the historical backdating of the data is showing them what things that have potentially already happened. Um, and we've already seen it just wanting run, one, running one bank's data against uh, the, the, the sort of the analysis engine and discovered that they had internally financed the same invoice twice at the same bank. Um, so we're, we're pretty confident they, the problem exists. We've got some of the, the, the brightest guys from the, from the fraud and financial crime space uh, now working with us and sort of helping us identify what these problems are. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, the banks. I, I believe well, there's a couple things, right? One is the layering in of, of these authenticity checks. Um, all these guys are coming to the banks individually right now and saying, "Oh, there's 30 different API providers out there. You know, how do I prioritize? How do I schedule this? What regions are applicable?" Um, our value prop to them around the authentication piece is plug into us. We'll be connected to all of those authentication sources, and you can just uh, you know pick and choose. Um, and then I think, so that's a, that's a big thing is, is as, as these, the plethora of services sort of start to abound out there, how do they, how do they rationalize it? How do they have a single point to, to bring them on? So a lot of uh, the discussions we've been having with some of the major banks have been around, okay, well, can you just aggregate all that? And then we use you for authenticity checks. And um, that's, that's kind of in the weeds, your business, you know, finding these pain points in the process. 
Uh, in a couple of years, do you have a sense of what this could mean um, for, you know, basically trade finance in general? Do you see big changes happening in, in, in how banks approach, uh, whether it's letter of credit or on account type of uh, financing? Yeah, so I mean, I think as a, you know, we're just one small piece of this digitization or digitalization uh, uh, journey. Um, there's there, you know, until we get rid of paper from end to end, um, there's always going to be an element of, of potential fraud or, or misdocumentation or even just, you know, erroneous input of data, things like that. Um, but, you know, I think that the long-term effect from companies like Contour, uh, you know, even, even uh, Congo and, and all the different uh, networks out there, the trade finance registry in Singapore, where they're making, basically making a push for digitization, even just within that own, own region, um, yeah. you're going to see increased efficiency. Uh, you're going to see, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you've got these authenticity checks, you don't have document checkers, right? Uh, or maybe you have them that do it last. They check that the document has been checked properly by the authentication engine or whatever, um, or only take, you know, sort of uh, outline cases. So you're going to see an efficiency within the bank. Hopefully that'll lead to improved customer experience, um, you know, in terms of turnaround times, things like that. Um, access to capital, cost of capital. Um, you know, everyone talks about the trade finance gap and, and, and you know, why does it exist and how do we address it? My biggest belief is, is that it exists because of lack of digitization and with that digitization. And if we, you know, if you've got e-invoicing and things like that, which India is pushing out, Mexico's had forever, a lot of Latin American countries have that, where you can start to triangulate the validity of the invoice. You can start to actually, with supplier consent, look at all of the invoices that they've registered over the past and get a feel for, you know, are they a legitimate business or not? Um, is it in line with the financials that you've been provided? All sorts of things like that um, are going to start to close that trade finance gap because that lower end of the market is the hardest to service just because of the KYC cost. But once, you, once you've got some sort of centralized KYC or digitized KYC, that goes down. Um, so, I, yeah, I think... You know, obviously, you know, everyone wants to focus on expanding the broader side of the market, you know, big global trade and things like that. But I think, you know, a lot of what we're going to see, and my hope anyway, is, is that the downstream side will actually also, the knock-on effect of this digitization and this push at the upper end will then knock-on effect will be the downstream uh, banks and, or sorry, uh, businesses and what have you will now get access to more interesting capital. Great. Jesse, I really appreciate coming on to uh, DigiFinVox to speak with me. Um, you've come a long way from uh, selling uh, video ad mechanisms to uh, to New York broadcasting behemoths. Now you're looking at the trade finance. Anything that you see after, you know, as you're executing on Monetigo, anything in the future where you see your trajectory moving it? Uh, no, I don't, you know, I don't think so. Uh, you know, I think this is a pretty interesting challenge right now. Um, you know, as always, I think we're, we're always collaborating with other companies in the space and, and, and what have you, but, uh, no, this is a, this is a, this is a pretty good spot to be for the next, next few years. Um, and then after that, who knows, maybe I'll go reinvent some other industry. Okay. Well, I think we'll leave it on that note then. Thanks for your time today, Jesse. Awesome. Thank you, Jamie. You have a great day as well. Bye now. Bye-bye. Okay.